You're listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and director of the Regional Burn Center there. Uh, the topic that we're going to talk about today is uh, the idea of patient ventilator interactions. What does that mean? Well, again, we've talked about the idea that when somebody breathes, they're interacting with the machine. And that we take for granted that since we do this commonly, the magnitude of the insult that we're putting on the physiological system. We breathe by negative uh, pressure breathing. The uh, ventilator is a positive pressure machine. And what we do is we think that if we dial in a set frequency rate uh, and tidal volume, that that's all there is to do that. And we walk away and we don't really look at how the patient's interacting with the mechanical ventilator. There's been a tremendous amount of uh, uh, research and a, a rapidly growing body of literature that looks at things like delirium and sedation in the ICU. Well, what do we do? A patient does not look comfortable on a ventilator. They're fighting or, quote, bucking the ventilator. What do we do? Well, we naturally assume that we are inadequately sedating the patient. So what we do is we snow the patient with more drugs like narcotics and benzodiazepines, and then what happens is we take away all of their will to breathe away, and therefore they are on a mechanical ventilator because of our drugs. Uh, and then it turns into a positive feedback cycle, like a dog chasing the tail. We had the patient mechanically ventilated, therefore we sedate them. We sedate them so much that they can't breathe, and therefore we're required to mechanically ventilate them. And at some point, the cycle never, uh, we have to try to break the cycle. Now, next time your patient is uh, looking sedate or uh, agitated or, uh, quote, bucking the ventilator, uh, what can we do? Well, maybe we need to look at how the patient's interacting with the ventilator. Maybe we can fine-tune the ventilator uh, such that the patient appears more comfortable and perhaps spare the patient um, um, a bolus of uh, fentanyl or spare them a bolus of Versed just by adjusting the ventilator to the point where the ventilator should be. We now know and recognize that uh, there are serious patient ventilator, uh, what we call dyssynchrony, uh, and exists in all three phases of the breath delivery on mechanical ventilation. What are the three phases of breath delivery on mechanical ventilation? Well, there's the trigger phase. The trigger phase is basically the method by which the patient tells the ventilator, hey, I want a breath. And there's different ways that that trigger can be uh, initiated, and we'll talk a little bit about that. The flow delivery phase. What is the flow delivery phase? Well, it is what it sounds like. The delivery of gas when the flow of the ventilator is turned on. So the first phase is the trigger phase. The second phase is the flow delivery phase. The third phase is known as the breath cycling off phase. The breath cycling off phase. What is that? Well, it's the end of the breath. Now, the problems that dyssynchrony on the ventilator can create are uh, substantial imposed uh, loads on the ventilator muscles, which can lead to muscle fatigue, discomfort, which results in what? Increase in use of sedation and unnecessary time on the ventilator. And I'm just not talking about days, or I'm talking about minutes but here, but I'm talking about days on the ventilator. So the first phase of uh, breath delivery on the ventilator, we said, is the trigger phase. Well, trigger dyssynchrony is often a consequence of intrinsic PEEP. And we've talked about intrinsic PEEP on a previous podcast, and we'll just review it a little bit. But intrinsic PEEP develops in the setting of high minute ventilation, short expiratory times, and long expiratory time constants. And this is what we typically see in patients who have obstructive airway disease. It takes them a long time to uh, empty the air out of their lungs. Well, how do I know if a patient has uh, auto PEEP or intrinsic PEEP? Well, one of the things that you can do is ask your respiratory therapist. So what's the patient's intrinsic or auto peep? You can also look, uh, like we use a lot of servo eyes um, at uh, Vanderbilt. And if you look at the, the flow of gas over time, 
And when uh, there's a baseline there, a line that goes clear across the screen, I, screen, I believe it's a, uh, I think it's a green, a green line on our displays. But when the line goes up, that's gas delivery into the patient. When the line's below the baseline, that's gas delivery out of the patient. And as the breath person is ending in their expiratory phase, it has to come back to baseline before the next breath. Because if it doesn't come back to baseline, then you're stacking breaths. And that's basically what intrinsic PEEP is. So, in, out, and then next breath. But when you get intrinsic PEEP, you go, in, next breath. And you, well, I haven't finished my breath. Well, the ventilator's saying, well, you, you had your time. Okay, here comes the next breath. And you're stacking these breaths. Well, how can I reduce that? Well, I can increase the expiratory time on the ventilator, and I need to be looking for this. Now, under these conditions, the, the ventilatory muscles must first overcome the intrinsic peak before the ventilator senses an effort and delivers an assisted breath. Well, what does all that mumbo-jumbo mean? Well, if I have my, ba my ventilator set with a peep of 10, and the sensitivity on my trigger is set at minus 2, okay, this is a pressure trigger, that means that the ventilator's got a sense that I'm dropping from 10, minus 2, to 8. And once the... Uh, pressure, the peep is down to 8, the ventilator opens the valves and fires a breath. But if I've got auto peep or intrinsic peep, say, of 2, that means when I get the baseline, that means my, my pressure sitting at 12, not 10. Well, my trigger is minus 2. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean I have to get to minus 10, or to peep of 10 before the ventilator opens? No, it means I need to get to minus, I need to get to plus 8. It hasn't changed even though my intrinsic peep is, is elevating it. So what happens is the trigger <coughs> is much harder. So the patient has to fight and, and pull on that ventilator to hit that trigger. So when you've got intrinsic peep, it's like taking your sensitivity of your trigger to say minus 4 or minus 6. Well, the patient may not be able to generate that kind of um, um, negative inspiratory force uh, uh, predictably, uh, repetitively, to keep the patient comfortable. The result is that the triggering and even mistriggering, both of which pose significant muscle loads, there are several approaches to improving breath triggering to synchrony caused by intrinsic PEEP. One thing you can do is uh, reduce the minute ventilation, and you can certainly extend the expiratory time uh, to try to uh, get the gas return to go back to baseline and avoid your intrinsic PEEP. Now, this is real important when you're using flow cycle pressure support, uh, which may have prolonged inspiratory time in the presence of airway obstruction. Shortening the flow uh, cycling criteria or switching to pressure assist uh, with a set uh, inspiratory time may also be helpful. The other thing that we may see is triggering could be a problem uh, with patients uh, during the sleep period when uh, respiratory drive is reduced or maybe even be erratic. Uh, this uh, problem with uh, desynchrony or triggering can produce sleep disturbances, which can worsen the psychological stress uh, of being in the ICU and on the ventilator and further delay ventilator discontinuation. Now, there's something called flow delivery desynchrony. Now, when you get flow desynchrony, when you begin to take a breath in, you are delivering, you are pulling in a certain amount of gas per second, and that is your flow rate. Now, you may be trying to pull more gas than the ventilator is allowing you to do. And so what happens is you're almost choking on the ventilator. So the patient almost sounds like they're 
as they as the ventilator allows them to catch up, they're trying to pull gas, say, uh, at a, a flow rate, and the ventilator is only meeting half of that. So the patient pulls, the ventilator stops them, and they're kind of like choking on the ventilator. The patients look horribly uncomfortable when this occurs. Now, this is often reduced when, when you're using pressure-targeted or variable flow breaths are used compared with fixed flow breaths or, or flow volume-targeted breaths. There are two new developments that may improve flow and, and cycle desynchrony. One is called proportional assist ventilation. Now, this is a cool mode of ventilation. This is, this is cool. Proportional assist mode ventilation, we, we, we know what pressure support is. And we said pressure support is like a pressure augmentation. We did a whole podcast on this. And that what you do is you may not be able to pull a 700cc breath, but you get a pressure augmentation uh, on a flow cycle trigger to give you uh, the, the pressure augmentation. You can only do 500. You, you want the patient to do 700. You make up that difference using pressure support. It's a very, very simplified uh, approach to that. Now, proportional assist ventilation is it does by a work of breathing. And you tell, I want the patient to do 70% of the work of breathing. And proportional assist will say, fine, I'll add 30%. And it's basically, a, again, a very simplification of that. But again, very, very... Um, very straightforward in that what it does is uh, you can actually gauge the amount of work of breathing you're going to allow the patient to do. Now, some of the newer ventilators are coming out with uh, this mode of um, uh, ventilation, and uh, it's going to be exciting uh, to use. There's obviously no uh, outcome data that I'm aware of that shows that this is uh, better than the current pressure support uh, or uh, CPAP uh, trials that we're using. I know that it's been used a lot in Europe uh, and I believe Canada more so than the United States. The other is called NAVA, which is Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist. Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist, NAVA. Well, what is that? Well, how do we trigger a ventilator? We already said that there is a pressure uh, trigger. So that if I have got a, uh, like on a SIMV ventilator and I drop it from, I have the trigger set at minus 2 and the peep is at 10, that means the peep has to drop to 8 and then the ventilator says, ah, he's taking a breath, opens the valves, here comes the gas, and there's your next tidal breath. And that is a pressure trigger. There are also flow triggers, and flow triggers are used, typically I believe like in pressure support uses a flow trigger. Uh, there are time triggers. Uh, the old anesthesia machines used to do a time trigger, so basically every six seconds, bam, you would get a breath. And now there's this neurally um, adjusted uh, ventilatory assist. What is that? Well, what uh, NAVA does is you've got a small tube, smaller than an NG tube, and you put it down through the nose into the esophagus. And you've got, it basically, it's, it's not a tube, it's, it's an electrode. Uh, and what it does is it's sensing neural firing from the phrenic nerve. And this basically it generates an uh, EMG array, and it detects the inspiratory muscle activity. And that's this inspiratory muscle activity that drives the pressure flow output of the ventilator off of this neuro EMG array. Now that seems to be the ultimate in what would trigger a ventilator and hopefully reduce dyssynchrony. Because if you think about pressure, I've already got to start the breathing, and then what happens is the ventilator's got to detect that I've started the breath and then catch up with me. Same thing with flow. I've got to start the breath, hit a trigger, and then the ventilator has to catch up with me after I've already started the breath. With NAVA type of ventilation, it's picking up as you're communicating from the brain to the inspiratory muscles, hey, I'm going to start taking a breath. 
The clinical adoption in NAVA, however, is likely to be driven by logistical difficulties and the costs associated with the sensory arrays. This is an expensive mode of ventilation, and then like anything else, like plasma screen TVs, when plasma screen TVs first came out, nobody could afford them, and then as more people used them, the costs of production went down, the cost of uh, acquisition also went down, and we see plasma screens everywhere, and hopefully we'll see something along that line with uh, NAVA type of ventilation. Now, getting people off the ventilator still remains a challenge to most, and still people will say, well, I need to wean people from the ventilation, even though that language has been condemned years and years ago, that we don't wean people from ventilation, we liberate them. Well, now a lot of ICUs and hospitals around the country have adopted what's called spontaneous breathing trials, and, and what are these and why are we doing them? There's been several evidence-based guidelines that have argued convincingly that daily spontaneous breathing trials are the most direct way of assessing the ability of the patient recovering from respiratory failure to tolerate ventilator discontinuation. Now, a patient uh, who passes a spontaneous breathing trial, what is that? Well, uh, passing a spontaneous breathing trial means an assessment of gas exchange, typically a blood gas, or the hemodynamically stable, and there's definitions of what that is. Uh, what's their ventilator pattern, uh, ventilation pattern, i.e., what's their respiratory rate? Is it too fast? Is it too shallow? And do they look comfortable? And again, these are rather subjective um, uh, assessments. They're not rise, but uh, they're, they are defined. And if the patient uh, basically passes a spontaneous breathing trial, the likelihood of tolerating ventilator removal is high, and if airway protection is adequate, i.e. they're awake, able to cough, and what have you, the likelihood of extubation success is also uh, very high. Now, um, we've been able to develop protocols, and these are typically run by the respiratory therapist, and you can run patients uh, who meet these criteria for spontaneous breathing trials uh, in the ICU every morning and get a, a, an assessment of who's likely to tolerate extubation. Now, how do you uh, run a spontaneous breathing trial on a patient who's basically in a drug-induced uh, stupor? Uh, and that gets to the issue of having spontaneous awakening trials. Uh, over the recent years, the role of excessive sedation hindering ventilation discontinuation uh, has been increasingly appreciated, i.e. that we keep people asleep, it seems, for days and days on end, and that if we don't give them opportunities to wake up, how on earth are we going to assess their ability mechanic to, to awake and, and, and breathe with the absence of the mechanical ventilator? And it's, it's been this realization that's led to um, uh, calls for what we call daily spontaneous awakening trials. And that we should do spontaneous awakening trials as well uh, in conjunction with our spontaneous breathing trials. Now, some people haven't been big fans of this because the idea is that, well, we're taking a patient who is sedated or in pain and we're stopping all of their drugs and uh, this is cruel and unusual and perhaps can lead to uh, the patient causing self-harm by pulling tubes and lines and, and, um, and the tracheal tubes. Well, those are all very real concerns, but again, this is being done in an intensive care unit in an awake situation and we're not allowing the patient to fully wake up and, and do Sudoku puzzles. We're, we're doing a discontinuation of the medications, allowing the patient to um, uh, begin to move and follow some commands and then reevaluating uh, the maintenance dose of those medications if required. You know, I clearly I run a burn unit. My patients are in an excruciating amount of discomfort and we'll do modified spontaneous awake trials where we will discontinue 
half the dose. So somebody is getting 500 of fentanyl, we will drop it every morning to 250 mics of fentanyl an hour and evaluate what the patient's overall situation is, uh, their ability to follow commands and, and, and move all four extremities. Um, un, under that condition, now it may we've been looking hard at the narcotics for years past, but some of the uh, more recent work in delirium is showing that it's the non-interrupted benzodiazepines that may be more problematic in the development of uh, delirium. Now, the awake and breathing control trial, the ABC trial, and I, I have to wonder how much time people spend in getting these cute names for their studies, but they are effective. Um, this was a trial of 355 mechanically ventilated, mechanically ventilated patients, and they were randomized to management with a daily spontaneous breathing trial. Basically, business as usual, but do a spontaneous breathing trial every day. Or, you had a spontaneous awake trial, followed by a spontaneous breathing trial. Seems to make more sense. Wake the patient up and see how they breathe. And those are your two groups. Now, the group that had the spontaneous awake, uh, awakening trial involved daily discontinuation of all sedation and following protocol rules to assure prompt responses to anxiety or delirium. Now, these are these trials are being done, uh, particularly the group at Vanderbilt, who uh, is just uh, world famous on issues of delirium. These people know how to manage um, anxiety and delirium in the ICU. Now, compared with the usual care plus spontaneous breathing trials, the group that had the spontaneous awake trials plus the spontaneous breathing trials had on average 3.1 additional days breathing without the assistance of the mechanical ventilator during a 28-day period. Well, what does that mean? It means they were off the ventilator three days faster. Those who had the spontaneous awake trial and the spontaneous breathing trial versus those who had the spontaneous breathing trial alone. Uh, and like I said, the ones who had combined spontaneous awakening and spontaneous breathing trials were, um, in a 28-day period, were on mechanical ventilation 11.6 days versus 14.7 days for those who only had the spontaneous breathing trials. Those who had both were discharged from the intensive care unit approximately four days earlier and hospital discharges approximately four days earlier as well, all statistically significant. More spontaneous awake trials plus the spontaneous breathing trials uh, patients had self-extubations, uh, and this is what people worry about, but it's you know 9.6 versus 3.6%. And again, statistically significant. Three times more self-extubations in those patients who had the spontaneous awake trials and the spontaneous breathing trials. Now, I told you earlier that in the unit that I work in, it is a burn unit, and these patients have burned faces, and their airways are exceptionally high-risk airways. Now, having said that, we will—that's uh, why we do modified uh, spontaneous awake trials, with the recognition that when we wake patients fully, we do have uh, a higher risk of um, self-extubations and putting an endotracheal tube back in a uh, patient who is 70% burned and they're hospital day six and they're still, you know, 30 liters positive, um, that is a potentially life-threatening or even life-ending event. Now, once the patients are trached, you could be a little bit more aggressive. Now, in fairness, the number of patients who required reintubation after self-extubation was similar, about 3% versus 1.8%, and those were not statistically uh, um, significant differences, meaning that a lot of the patients who self-extubated were fine. Uh, as were the total reintubation rates at 13.8 versus 12.5%. So again, uh, the patients requiring reintubation were equivalent in the two groups. Now, during the 28-day study period, 47 patients, roughly 28%, in the spontaneous awake and spontaneous breathing trial group died compared to 
58 or 34 percent uh, in the usual spontaneous breathing trial group. Now that was not statistically different. There was a trend at a P level of 0.21, but that was not statistically significant. There were trends towards less sedation use and brain dysfunction also in the spontaneous awake and spontaneous breathing trial groups. Now these results strongly suggest that aggressive um, but closely monitored sedation um, reduction coupled with spontaneous breathing trials improve outcomes in mechanically ventilated patients recovering from acute respiratory failure. And to this end, we're seeing this adopted in many of the intensive care units, including um, all of the intensive care units at Vanderbilt and maybe your intensive care unit as well. And that's the reason why uh, we're seeing the, the uh, people being very aggressive with spontaneous awake trials and spontaneous breathing trials. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening.